0: Hello, everyone. Thanks for listening again. So, welcome to I think our fifth um, policy podcast on the 2020 document Charities Scotland and Hollywood 20 Years Living Change. My name is Jenny Bloomfield. I'm Senior Policy Lead at SCVO. And today I've got with me Mike Robinson, who's Chief Executive of Royal Society, Scottish Geog- Geographical Society, excuse me, and was formerly Chair of Stop Climate Chaos. Hi, Mike. Hello. Thanks for coming in. No, um, so for those who don't know, can you just tell us briefly what Stop Climate Chaos is?
1: Sure. Um, it is a coalition, mm-hmm. um, very broad coalition of NGOs, community groups, um, all aspects of civil society, uh, church groups, um, some of the key churches as well, and unions and others. And uh, in a way, um, it was very purposefully designed to be as broad as possible, yeah. so I guess um, when I first set it up, it was there to be uh, sort of make poverty history plus, okay. um, so that's obviously been a very successful campaign, mm-hmm. we started with a, a core of major NGOs, um, and slowly grew that outwards and sideways. Brilliant, so.
0: thank you. So we're here to talk about the Climate Act 2009, which is features in our book, um, and that was deemed to be world leading at the time. So why was that? What, what was special about this particular bit of legislation that maybe other acts on climate didn't have or hadn't had? <laughs>
1: um, well, first of all, there weren't that many acts on okay, the climate yeah. uh, back in two thousand nine, um, and there was lots of there was a context there. I mean, this was a, for us this was a three year campaign, so it wasn't. And this is something i have been building to since 2006 when we established the coalition. Mm-hmm. Um, what was particularly world leading, the most obvious thing is some of the targets and mainly the 2020 target. So the 2020 target was based on how quickly we could make some inroads to climate and carbon emissions. Um, because urgency was one of the messages that wasn't really coming across in the policy arena. So there was a big conversation about making sure the target, the early target, if you like, was reasonably tight. So the 2050 target wasn't really particularly up for debate. That was fairly reasonably set around 80% for 2050. Mm -hmm. No, A lot of people didn't think at the time that was necessarily enough to meet climate targets, but it didn't unsettle politicians too yeah. much because it was so far away. Yeah. So the real um, headline issue was around making sure there was a much closer at hand target that was meaningful.
0: So what did you get in the 2020 target? We got a 42% okay.
1: target but the conversation, it was the thing that went to the wire. Mm-hmm. So there was a, there's, there's a, a rake of things that were in Useful and new and world leading about the legislation, mm-hmm. um, and I mustn't forget to tell you some of them. But the target itself, it absolutely went down to the wire. So the um, the best that we could get at the time from political parties was thirty four percent. There was a move very close to the actual uh, third stage debate uh, by Labour to push that to thirty eight percent. Still wasn't what we believed was needed and what the science. Indicated it was needed by, by developed nations. Mm-hmm. Um, so we weren't really happy with that, but it was yeah. the best we had. Um, and then over the weekend we did an awful lot of uh, continued pressure. We it was continuous pressure for three years really. Um, but on the Monday the SNP started to move in the right direction, said they would consider a different target, um, but they needed to get advice from the UK Climate Change Committee. Okay. Um, And that was interesting. We were holding our breath because we sort of knew that they wouldn't accept 42% because mm-hmm. at the time nobody was quite sure how to get to 42%. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but even then, with the advice that came back, actually on the sort of Tuesday afternoon, um, the government finally sort of conceded. But there was a get-out, there was a clause that said if Europe didn't do more, mm-hmm. they could drop it back Drop the target okay. back to 34. So it was still framed differently, but we had ostensibly got the 42% yeah. that we'd been seeking.
0: So I just want to ask, was it always the aim of the coalition to bring in new, new legislation? Or was that something that sort of came up once the coalition had formed?
1: The, I guess it was twofold. I mean, there'd already been pressure within the manifesto's um, commitments from various of the NGOs trying to push for climate change legislation of some kind or climate change action of some kind. Mm-hmm. I, I don't think there's any question that we wanted a Climate Change Act fundamentally. There was also a discussion at the UK level for a UK Climate Act. Um, originally, the Scottish Act was going to come first and the UK one later. And for a variety of reasons, the UK one was accelerated and the Scottish one was delayed. Mm-hmm. So it that actually that turning around made our job a little bit easier. It gave us longer to develop the asks, mm-hmm. uh, and also gave us a benchmark from which to assess where we were and what we were doing. Mm-hmm. Um, so it played to all sorts of different political possibilities yeah. at the time. But there were, as I said, there was a lot of different things that contained in that act um, from. Uh, building standards to including aviation emissions as mm-hmm. um, one of the slight disappointments in the end was the, um, the Scottish Government agreed with uh, the Parliament accepted that it needed to include aviation mm-hmm. and shipping emissions which also made it completely unique in the world and they also mm-hmm. accepted that aviation causes a higher um, impact on the emissions that they generate mm-hmm. so their global emissions is probably 3-4% to of global emissions but they emit those emissions at altitude where they have a higher impact, so there's a regularly, there's there's a common belief as they there should be a multiplier attached to aviation emissions. And the science said that the multiplier was somewhere between two and three, but it wasn't settled. Mm -hmm. Um, And in the conversation after the act was passed, which accepted an aviation multiplier, um, government took the view that because um, nobody could tell them exactly what the answer was, that they would set the multiplier at one Mm. which unfortunately meant that it was world leading because it had a multiplier and then we'd completely negated the multiplier by setting it at one. Yes. (laughs) At least I
0: didn't set it at zero.
1: (laughs) Progress indeed.
0: Um, So you worked in coalitions throughout, obviously. So I'm curious, there's there's lots of the campaigns in our book, coalitions were formed. I'm curious for you, how vital was the coalition to the campaign?
1: The coalition was absolutely vital. Um, I said there were sort of different reasons. One of the reasons that um, I thought it was so important to raise a flag for climate change was at the time, back in 2006, there was plenty of anxiety about climate change, but there wasn't really a sort of point to rally around. Mm -hmm. And it really desperately needed that. There was a vacuum, I felt, in that sort of, you know, civil space, that where do you go? Where do you turn to what do you do how do you evidence your concern and so actually the very first thing we did was started running a, a, a partly because it's better to do something than do nothing yeah, sure. we just started running a program of um, public talks public events um, we particularly in that October ran a month of activities all over Scotland um, aimed at the public just informing them just bringing in some of the leading authors leading scientists leading mm-hmm. thinkers and just giving them a public platform mm-hmm. and it it was very, very helpful because it allowed people to sort of um to coalesce around the issue and learn more and inform mm-hmm. themselves better mm-hmm. and understand which bits to panic about and which bits to be less less worried about. The coalition was critical because one there was that concern was very broadly held. It wasn't just a narrow group of individuals, perhaps involved in just the environment charities, mm-hmm. that had this concern. It was it was a concern shared by health organisations and development bodies and mm-hmm. international aid bodies and, mm-hmm. um, and church groups and user groups of various kinds and even the unions and others. And so mm-hmm. there was a real need to, to draw all of that together um, to help give a sense that there was a direction of travel and there was a way that we could yeah. tackle this huge, mm-hmm. huge overwhelming issue. Mm-hmm. But the other reason that the coalition was so important is because politically it had a breadth Mm -hmm. that politicians were really quite, you know, won over by. I mean, obviously, you know, there was a a sense that this is coming from lots of different Mm -hmm. angles, lots of different quarters. It wasn't Mm -hmm. just the usual suspects ranting about worries about climate change and all the uh, doom and gloom around the corner. This was actually a very, very broad... Um, network of organizations from all sorts of different fields from community groups to international bodies and from even some sort of mental health groups right the way through to normal health unions student yeah. groups etc so it was very 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 broad um, and that in itself I mean you know I very consciously recruited some of the organizations with large memberships so mm-hmm. we you know at, at the time the act uh, passed through the State street debate we had um, 2 million supporters indirectly through the 50 to 60 organisations that were attached to the coalition. So, yeah. in a country of 5 million, that was quite persuasive. Yeah, absolutely. However, the one that was most persuasive, I still think, or, or it sort of ratcheted up the mm-hmm. way that we were viewed politically. Mm-hmm. And what it did also was it slightly broke down it being a party political concern, because that was something that was really determined that we had to avoid. Mm-hmm. Um, which, of course, is the reason that America's. Contribution to climate change at the moment is so fragile. Mm. Is Obama very purposefully signed the Paris Agreement without bringing the whole of the Senate behind him? And in doing that, actually, it just wasn't going to survive a change of president, mm. especially the one that they've had. So it was really critical that we got cross-party buy-in, and I believe that one of the moments that helped secure that um, was when we brought the political, lead- the religious leaders together actually for a okay. joint press statement. So we had the cardinal, the moderator, and an imam come together and do a joint press statement on climate change, and it felt just in terms of policy terms that that just ratcheted up the way people viewed it. It just took us that a bit more seriously Mm -hmm. suddenly, because you know if religious leaders can see beyond the differences, then it didn't really make sense to have party political divides around how you viewed this this topic
0: brilliant thank you um so part of the reason we're doing this podcast here is so that our listeners in the sector can do similar excellent campaigns themselves so i'm interested in practicalities of a coalition how did you keep everyone on board and how did you deal with disagreements which invariably arise when you work in partnership
1: a hundred percent um I feel obliged to actually start answering by just saying that something I think the um, the third sector overlooks a lot mm. is how bloody good it is at some things. Um, if if you if you you know inhabit the the civil sector, you take for granted that people are incredibly politically astute, mm-hmm. and incredibly well informed, and incredibly mm. passionate, and knowledgeable and scientific and all sorts of other things and uh, and so one of the great joys of working in a coalition as I, and, and, and chairing that coalition was that I just got to meet and work with so many people that knew what they were doing and mm-hmm. were really, really good at it. Yeah. Um, I was convinced i met at least three people that would be future First Ministers. Mm-hmm. Um, so do you, keeping it together, how do you, first of all, how do you keep it together? Well, one of the things that was really, really important, this is not necessarily a helpful exercise <laughs> so for everybody, right. but um, a coalition of such import, one of the things I wanted to avoid, I also sat on the um, board of, uh, of the same, the equivalent coalition in London, mm-hmm. and they had a much um, more torrid time, really, and there are a number of reasons why that was difficult. One of them, if I'm honest, is because there's quite a lot of egos at senior level in some bodies. Mm-hmm. And they struggled to balance who was leading, who what was leading, how they were taking it forward. And I used to jokingly describe it as sort of zigzag management. So we roughly knew where we needed to get to, but depending on who'd turned up and who had the biggest personality, we would veer off to the yes. left and then veer off to the right and yeah. And it took the sort of more moderate voices in the room to keep it actually vaguely in the same direction. Mm -hmm. But the biggest single concern in London was that um, some of the key bodies that were engaged in the coalition were also engaged in two other coalitions which were ostensibly the same thing. Right. And it felt as if they were backing several horses to increase the chances of success. Yeah. In establishing the Scottish Coalition, I was determined that we didn't do that. We Mm -hmm. had one voice. Mm -hmm. So the first thing was to get that sort of sense of buy-in. Ultimately, part of that, I believe, we achieved through focusing on the issue Mm -hmm. very closely. Mm -hmm. That was what mattered. And reminding people of the issue and keeping people on board with all of that. Yeah, there was a big exercise in communication. I would regularly write letters to the coalition. I'd regularly meet all the uh, chief executives of various NGOs that were on the board. Mm. I would often be the person introducing new people to the coalition. I would yeah. be the one doing the invita- inviting and meeting them and persuading them to be, come, come and be part mm. of it all. Um, I wrote an annual Christmas letter to everybody to let them know what we'd been up to, what was happening next. Yep. Did we need a bit more money? Where were we yep. going? What were the main priorities? How much time do we have left? Mm. And all that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. That was all important. Um, and But the other thing I did do, and the bit that's probably not entirely helpful for everybody, is that where I really met resistance, so if there were certain organisations that just really weren't being... Um, part of the group, part yeah. of the collective effort, yeah. um, I would seek to influence that, I would seek to try and help persuade them that it would be far better if everybody just all worked together. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I did go as far as joining one or two boards of organisations, particularly where I felt they could be more magnanimous in their responsibility okay. within the coalition.
0: Press work, we've spoken very briefly about press work. Um, I assume you did quite a lot.
1: Yes. Yeah. So what does it, so what, what do you want to so know about in terms?
0: Yeah. So was that planned? Was that reactive or proactive? Was it a combination of the two? How did you sort of go about doing that and then run up to getting the act through?
1: The press work was critical. We did. Um, it started out. There's two different aspects to it. Mm-hmm. Um, the first is I actually um, believe that NGOs underestimate the value of their own communications Um, we're still one of the most trusted parts of society Mm. so and we have complete editorial control over our own newsletters our own media Mm. so we can say undiluted messages to very large numbers of people so the first thing was this consistent messaging to everybody from Church of Scotland congregations through to people and planet meetings and you know, Quakers groups and whatever, everybody mm. needed to start talking about this issue and understand how it related to why the things they cared about. So, that in that, in I would call sort of internal media, was really critical. And it got to the point where if anybody, you know, I'm, I'm only interested in making things happen really. So, if somebody came up with a reason that something couldn't happen, we would just fix it. Um, and it meant I ended up writing for quite a lot of yeah. the different NGOs, newsletters and things, or, or drafting things for them to use, because just not having the content or not being confident in the content wasn't enough. We had loads of people that could do that. We can, we can find that. That's not a problem, mm. but you need to make the space. Mm. So, um, so that, that internal media was really important in terms of the normal media. Yes, of course, critical. Real battle getting them to recognise the coalition in the early days. Okay. Because they had their go-to voices on different issues. Yeah. So getting them to sort of view it in the way that we wanted them to, which was also getting some of the less usual voices to mm-hmm. echo some of the comments, uh, that was that was challenging. So what we did around that was these agreed press moments. Yeah. Um.
0: So what did those consist of? Can you give an example? Well, any
1: of the so when they launched the consultation. Uh, first stage consultation, for instance, mm-hmm. I, my day job was at botanic Gardens, so I managed to persuade the minister to lodge the consultation at the botanics in Edinburgh, which was meant that we immediately were there, on the, you know, available and yeah. able to sort of be part of that. And there was an agreement that it was the coalition that would speak to anything from okay. government and respond to that, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. rather than the individual bodies. Yeah. Now that, as I said, that didn't always Work in the way that we might have yeah. envisaged, um, but as the coalition grew, so any key moments where we thought there was a particular need, or I mean, there's, there's, I mean, nowadays there's so many reports coming out you can't mm. keep up with them. But mm. at the time, there was the Stern report at the back in mm-hmm. two thousand six, and there was, uh, you know, the UN report. There was Copenhagen. There was all these things happening. Mm-hmm. So there were any of these moments we would usually highlight as a key moment for the coalition mm-hmm. to respond and try to sort of carve that time out. But it it really, it's always been a challenge, it's always difficult. Media work is by nature usually quite reactive. Yeah. So it can be quite difficult to schedule or cover mm-hmm, if mm-hmm. a media officer from um, SCIAF or Oxfam or Friends of the Earth or whoever. Yeah. Uh, Wwf is sitting there doing the media work. When do they represent their own organisation? When do they represent the coalition? Yeah. And how does that work? Yeah. That comes difficult. becomes difficult. But the single biggest thing that was difficult in the first place was getting agreed statements. So, um, and there is a learning piece here. And I suppose we we would write a response to a media piece, mm-hmm. circulate it around the coalition, mm-hmm. and we'd get fifty-seven answers as to what they thought things should mm-hmm. say. And by the time we'd got any version that people vaguely agreed with, yeah. we'd missed the moment. Yeah. So, um, so I actually decided to do it differently and said to the board and got agreement from the policy team that, look, these are the key asks.
0: Our key to your success was engagement with the general public? And I have like, vague memories of marches, but I'm yes. sure you did more than that. So please tell me, what form did it take?
1: Well, the first, the I mean, the public was absolutely critical. Um, as you know, politicians are very rarely brave. They they need to be reassured that there are people standing where they where you're telling them to go. Um, so the key issue was to evidence the fact that there was genuine public anxiety around this and a, and a desire to see movement. So. The first thing is of course that the, I mean, the public is comprised of members of civil society bodies yeah. um, so some of our public were churchgoers and they were members of the RSPB or, or regular donors to SCIAF okay. um, or one of the aid agencies or card-carrying union members or the National Union students um, all these sorts of bodies. National Trust for Scotland and another another body that joined up as well and so that's our first public, that's the the members of the the various organisations and as I said that actually added up to over two million in itself although admittedly some of them were were members of more than one Mm organisation but um, that gave us a pretty good head start but we did quite consciously run a lot of public events all over Scotland, Mm -hmm. we ran climate cafes, we ran lecture series, we ran uh, regular columns in the media that did want to work with us um and we just took every opportunity we could to get a public voice to this um often challenging I did some some of the worst moments of my life <laughs> I one or two of the debates I got sucked into um, with a variety of sort of climate skeptics um, but it was it was really anything and everything but a lot of public events a lot of and, and a lot of um, internal media um, yeah. mm-hmm. wherever we could so that was Critical because, of course, we wanted um, we wanted it to be a publicly shared concern. We didn't just want it to be, again, just anything that looked like the usual suspects. Through the actual consultation process, um, at the time the stage one came out, it was viewed as an environmental issue, and mm-hmm. we were trying to sort of say, well, actually, this is much bigger than that. However, it is worth bearing in mind that at that point, the biggest. Mailbag the Environment Minister had ever had was over 400 letters about um, docking the tails on dogs, which I hadn't actually thought of as an environmental issue. No, me neither. Um, So um, we pushed very hard to make sure that we got big public engagement and we had 21,000 responses. One uh, probably WWF were the sort of stars of that particular bit, but in in total, we got over 21,000 responses to the consultation mm-hmm. at stage one. Mm-hmm. We ran events at the parliament uh, regularly outside the parliament. We had about three at different, particularly at the stages of the debate, um, even on the day itself of stage three debate, the final um, passing of the act. We had something like 400 representatives from every uh, constituency in Scotland came to the parliament to ask how their MSPs were voting, how they were about to vote in the afternoon, and basically what they would have been up to and what their positions were. So uh, in that sense, we had pressure all the way through. We just continually Mm -hmm. applied it. We ran climate cafes in every constituency. Uh, We did individual briefing uh, of key organisations within different constituencies. Mm -hmm. Um, And of course, obviously, quite a lot of individual political briefings too. But that idea of keeping the public pressure visible and on you know, on, on each of the key stages was absolutely critical. We did run marches but the biggest march we ran actually was after the Act had gone through. We took 8,000 people through the streets of Glasgow the day before the Copenhagen Climate Cop in 2009. So it passed in the summer of 2009. And of course what was really important was it genuinely was world leading and still remains one of the most world leading pieces of legislation. But that in itself wasn't enough, of course. Mm-hmm. Nothing is in climate change.
0: Indeed, and I'm um, afraid we run out of time, so I can't go into that with you, although I'm fully aware that that is um, an ongoing issue, as it is for many of our campaigns, unfortunately. But um, keeps us all busy anyway. So um, thank you, Mike, for coming in. Thank you, everyone, for listening. What I'll do is I'll make sure that um, the details of Stop Climate Chaos are up on our website, um, so you can all go and look at that and also... Our book will also be up on there as well for you to have a little look at the Stop Climate Chaos campaign amongst others. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you.